This is a Federal News Network podcast. A lot happened in the world of DOD on Friday afternoon just before the long holiday weekend. The Biden administration released its budget proposal, and now we know just how austere its plans are for the Defense Department. Plus, we know more about the DOD's immediate future plans for its contested Jedi cloud computing project. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni join me with more. Scott, let's start with you. What are the big takeaways from that budget release Friday? I think one of the most important things to remember about this budget is that largely flat from last year. So there's $705 billion in the budget last year, as in last year, 2021. And now 2022, we have a $715 billion budget. So the caps are, you know, pretty much around the same. And what's underneath that is what's most interesting. The Defense Department's really moving around some chairs, moving around some blocks to try and, you know, make this budget something that focuses more on the future, more on near-peer competition, near uh, competition with China, and less about legacy systems and things like that. So they're taking this $2.8 billion and they've found certain systems, ships, aircraft, Craft, night vision goggles, some things within the uh, SOCOM, the Special Operations Command, that they're going to cut with congressional approval and then invest that into things like 5G, uh, future technologies, science and, te- science and technology, and uh, you know, other uh, things like hypersonics and those sorts of uh, futuristic weapons. Well, I guess the question is the 1.6% increase or whatever it is, that would barely cover the cost of the pay increase that they're intending for uniform services members. So therefore, they're going to have to find some places to trim back pretty sharply, I would think. Yeah, it's, it's actually uh, pretty interesting. We've seen all the major accounts. So talking about O&M, uh, you know, personnel and all those other ones have all increased. The one that we saw the only drop in was procurement. And, you know, I think that's because they're starting to look toward these future technologies. They want to put money in research. This is the most expensive research budget that they've had in Defense Department history with more than $120 billion in it. Uh, and, and so there's a lot that they're investing in, just not as much when it comes to actual systems that, that they're holding. And, and like we said, they're going to be divesting in, in some of those systems. So, uh, and, you know, just, just to clarify what you were saying about the raise there, that's a 2.7% increase for both civilians and military personnel. Got it. Okay. And with respect to that pivot to China, then what about shipbuilding? That I think is what people often look to as the bellwether for China because they have so much coastline and they are contesting the South China Sea and near the Philippines and you know, quite a distance in the Pacific Ocean. Well, this doesn't necessarily go into the shipbuilding part, but but they have created a Pacific Defense Initiative. That initiative is more than $5 billion and focuses really on what you're talking about there. Then, of course, the Navy itself is planning on, you know, still getting to that 355 ship, uh, you know, goal that they've been talking about for years. If they'll actually get there and if Congress actually approves things along the way, we'll have to see, you know, like we said, this has been a dream of theirs for a very long time. And there's been a lot of uh, talk between capability versus capacity. So, you know, that's something that the Defense Department is keeping an eye on, sure, with with the the, the sea and, and the Pacific Sea and everything like that. But I think it's mostly trying to get ahead when it comes to cyber and when it comes to space. They're putting more than $20 billion into space. They're putting billions of dollars in cyber defense and cybersecurity, upgrading IT systems. And those are the things that is, are really, they're hoping, are going to keep them ahead of China, uh, along with those innovative technologies and working with commercial industry. And Jared, you've been studying this pretty carefully since Friday. What else did you observe in the budget release? Yeah, actually, just to pick up on your last question and some of the stuff that Scott was talking about, Tom, it, 
as as Scott said earlier, a lot of these cuts really are focused in the procurement accounts along with some divestitures. One thing to note about that is those are the sorts of things that are very trivial for Congress to just add back in. It's uncomplicated to say we want X number of A-10s rather than Y number of A-10s. So there may be some people in the building who are just counting on that happening. Another interesting thing to me about some of those divestments is, remember back in the 2013-2014 timeframe, the Air Force had proposed getting rid of the entire A-10 fleet. The logic being that the only way that you really get to savings is if you completely eliminate that entire logistics tail. It doesn't really do a lot for you to only cut about half of the fleet, which is what they're proposing this time. They're not proposing of get, get, getting rid of all A-10s, only some of the fleet, which is, I think, maybe another hint that they're counting on Congress to come in behind them and add things back in. Well, that's right. This whole thing has to go through the grinding wheel of Congress, and there are 435 districts, each with an interest in that DOD budget. So this is still very early to know what it's going to look like at the end. And exactly. you're also reporting a detail about NGEN, which is kind of a bellwether project for the Navy. So, yeah, this is super interesting. Um, a year ago, Congress allowed DOD to create what they called a new software color of money appropriation. And the short version of what that does is you get to you get to spend all of your funds out of a single account instead of trying to figure out through the development of an IT system, okay, is this O&M money, is this procurement money, is this RDT&E money? It just makes absolutely no sense when you're trying to do anything resembling agile software development. They put some programs into it last year, only about $200 million worth. This year, they're proposing to put the entire NGEN program, about a billion dollars of spending in just one year, which really is the entire Navy Marine Corps intranet. It is basically all of their enterprise IT spending into this new color of money account. So it's going to be interesting to see whether Congress goes along with that because it is a lot of money in this experimental new uh, funding system. The former ATL, Alan Lord, helped and you know a lot of other people helped craft that whole idea of revolutionizing the way they buy software. It looks like the new administration kind of likes that idea, so this would be of a kind with that initiative. That's right, and I think the Navy has known for a long time that they would like the entire NGEN program to be a lot more agile and be able to do a lot more year-to-year flexing with exactly how they're investing their IT dollars. And speaking of other IT dollars, there is that big Jedi cloud computing initiative. Just a couple of weeks ago, judging what happened in court, Jared, you and I were discussing the idea that maybe now DOD would just drop the case and start over again. But Friday showed that's not quite what's going to happen. Yes, that was our other Friday news dump before the holiday weekend. So what happened essentially is that DOD uh, and Amazon jointly filed documents saying Uh, that they had not yet agreed on a schedule for how the bid protest lawsuit in Jedi should proceed. But the interesting part about it is DOD did not say we're throwing in the towel on this. Instead, they proposed a very detailed schedule for how things would play out. And in, in the most optimistic scenario, this case still wouldn't be done until late October. It is possible, I emphasize possible, that behind the scenes, DOD is still conducting this reassessment process to decide whether they want to proceed with Jedi at all. I'm very skeptical of that just because of the fact that they said all the way back in February, if they got the result in the case that you just mentioned, the judge's decision not to 
uh, uh, partially dismiss the lawsuit, they would have to reevaluate whether to go ahead with this at all. They had five months to decide what to do before the decision, then another month after the decision. So to me, all the tea leaves kind of point in the direction that they've decided it's worth it to see where this litigation goes. And just out of curiosity, of course, the other big part that DOD needs for anything to happen is the National Defense Authorization Act. And we know some things with respect to how sexual assault cases are handled and possibly other types of crime that occur in DOD are going to make their way into the NDAA. Have you seen any hint that anything related to Jedi would make it into NDAA if some lawmakers are fed up with this whole dragged out process? There are a few that are still making a little bit of noise about it, but I think it's mostly fallen off most people's radar just because there's been so little actual movement outside of the legal system on Jedi. I will say there is no mention of it whatsoever in the DOD budget proposal that we were just talking about a few minutes ago that you talk about several other interesting ways in which they want to use cloud computing, but nary a mention of Jedi, which was at one time the biggest cloud project anybody in the world was ever going to attempt. All right, so we'll have a lot to watch in the next few weeks as all of this stuff leaves the fan and hits Capitol Hill. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Massioni. Check out their stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is going to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.